0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? You're um, always
1: uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics and mostly Cuba. I am your
0: co-host, Dean Detloff. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. Dean, we're going to, have to talk about something that's not Cuba. Soon, and that's that's a hard idea to get my mind around,
1: yeah. Definitely not before the end of the year. That's true, that is a good thing, yeah. That's true. Um, yeah, you know, we did make it to the last Sunday in Advent, and uh, I think that is good. I think we all deserve a round of applause. All the candles are lit, the purples are out. <laughs> the purples are out. The candles are lit, so you know that Christmas is right around the corner. The waiting time is over. Uh, but guess what? I'm gonna be celebrating that on the hot beaches of Havana soon enough. <laughs>
0: and boy, I cannot wait. Man, I am I'm so jealous. Um but uh for the rest of us. <laughs> okay, you'll be you'll be in Cuba living uh your big revolutionary life, eating the Cuban <laughs> pizza and the Cuban ice cream, and it's gonna be great for you. That's right. Uh, But the rest of us, uh, this time, next Sunday, uh, we'll just be unwrapping our presents as normal, playing with our brand new Nintendo 64s. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, so you'll be in Cuba. We'll be playing Nintendo 64. It's great. But the one thing that no one will be doing is listening to a brand new episode of the Magnificast on Christmas. Um, Folks, that's right. We're taking a week off. And I got to say, we've earned it. Um, We've been on this grind for a very long time without missing (laughs) nearly any weeks, um, with a few exceptions. Um, But Dean will be traveling, and I'll just be taking a week-long Christmas nap. Um, And in the absence of an episode, we'll be putting up some of our favorite older Christmas content. We've got so much stuff. We've got so much content in store about Christmas um, that we might as well just put some of it up. We'll, We'll repost some of the good stuff. Don't worry, we'll be back in the new year with brand new content that may or may not be about Cuba. It <laughs> remains to be seen.
1: <laughs> we'll see how we're feeling. There's going to be at least one more episode about Cuba. Because once I come back, it's also going to be the only thing that I can think or talk about. That's true. We'll
0: definitely do a follow-up or two. Cuba's the third host of the Magnificat. <laughs> the entire country. <laughs> um, so it'll be there, folks. Uh, but anyways, just kind of mapping out where we're headed. So no one is in the dark about that.
1: That's right. Uh, we're all lit up by, as I said, the candles of Advent.
0: Um, so with uh,
1: Christmas looming, though, don't worry, we do have uh, another episode. It is about Cuba, but it is also about Christmas. We decided to get into some very niche Va'an content to round out this Advent series on Cuba. You might remember that a long time ago, in a previous episode, we talked about Pope Francis's remarks about Cuba and having this relationship with Raul Castro And guess what? Pope Francis was not the first pope to visit Cuba. And uh, there's a great sort of Christmas connection to papal visits to the island. And I'm not the pope, but I am going to go to Cuba. So I thought, why not find out how some other people thought (laughs) when they went to Cuba? Um, In fact, 1997 was the first papal visit to revolutionary Cuba. Pope John Paul II visited Cuba, and in response, Fidel Castro made Christmas an official holiday after banning it as a federal or government holiday, I guess, uh, soon after the revolution. The papal visits have been really interesting kind of flashpoints for controversy around Cuba, as you could guess. Um, if you Google these papal visits, you'll find all kinds of really fascinating media around it, Um people having expectations, disappointments, excitements, and so on. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the significance of the papal visits. Let's be real. We're going to talk about Pope John Paul II and Pope Francis. Maybe we'll obliquely mention Benedict, but I don't know. It's just not as exciting. I don't know what to say. No, not at all. Um, <laughs> in, in more ways than one. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, though, really interesting stuff, uh, all these popes going to Cuba And we want to sort out some of the ways, too, that Christianity works with and rubs up against the revolutionary project in Cuba. There's some, I think, really intriguing contradictions and um, I don't know, like people sort of talking past one another. You know, you can really see the Cuban Revolution trying to figure out what it wants to do with religion over the course of its uh, short existence. And the same with the Catholic Church. It's trying to sort out what it's going to do with these communist states that are around in the world... And lots more to say, but I think we should start at the very beginning, which is 1959 when Fidel did become the Grinch who stole Christmas. So, Matt, why don't you uh, get us on the board here? Um, Tell us a little bit about Fidel Castro canceling Santa Claus.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll say a little bit about it. Okay, so 1959, that's the big that's the big revolutionary year that we all do know and love. Um, And uh, wouldn't you know it? They did socialism. They got it figured out. They won the revolution. And the very first thing that Fidel Castro does, it says, uh, Santa, no, thank you. Get that Yankee out of here. We're gonna do something different. Everyone already knows uh, Santa is an imperialist, right? We all know we're all on the same page there. <laughs> yeah. so, He's a Coca Cola mascot. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So Fidel was not uh, not thrilled about uh, this like Santa character coming on the scene and then sort of Christmas being a uh, a big celebration in uh, in Cuba. You know, there's a lot to be said about the cultural differences between North America and Europe and the Caribbean and Latin America, especially when it comes to the celebration of Christmas. I think anyways. Right. Like Christmas has always been sort of one of those high holy days, I think, in North America and in Europe. But, you know, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, it's always been epiphany, sort of different, different, um, you know, religious calendars and the way that people interpret those things. Anyways, um, Fidel Castro did uh, cancel Christmas in 1959. And uh, this is uh, this is a way that uh, the New York Times put it, uh, kind of explaining the situation uh, to the people in the United States. (laughs) And we'll we'll keep talking about it because the story goes beyond 59. But this is kind of where it starts. The Cuban Revolution has produced a new figure to replace the undesirable foreigner Santa Claus in Cuba's Christmas. (laughs) He's Don Feliciano or Mr. Happiness. Don Feliciano is a typical Cuban countryman of the colonial days. He has a long drooping mustache and a beard divided into uh, thin strands. He wears a guillabera, a a coat-like shirt, a typical Cuban straw hat turned up in the front, and baggy trousers and leggings. So, you know, to kind of, like, uh, drive that that nationalist vibe right after the... um, right after the revolution and not to let uh, the Coca-Cola Santa man encroach upon um, any real estate in Cuba. Uh, uh, You know, the, the revolution turns out this like sort of new figure to, um, to take the place of, of, uh, of Santa. And to be fair, this is not something that, uh, I mean, Cuba necessarily invented either. I mean, uh, the Soviet Union did this as well. You know, it's just like one, one more way to sort of distinguish yourself from capitalist countries. And, uh, and Cuba did it, the Soviet Union did it, um, gotta get rid of this bad Santa and, uh, and come up with somebody different. So there's a, there's a, right. no, no Billy Bob Thornton no allowed. Yeah, in exactly. I guess all I'm trying to say here is that like, um, canceling Christmas is not the, uh, not the Grinch-like thing that you might imagine. Uh, but it is kind of an interesting cultural, um, invention i think that uh, some socialist countries kind of like imposed uh, and uh, yeah try to get away with but i don't know these things didn't really stick in the, in the long run
1: yeah a little bit of a uh, context too in 59 itself so it's true that the revolutionary government is intervening here to change some of the symbols of uh, of christmas But at this stage, too, Christmas is still like a pretty, I don't know, above board holiday and always will remain so. Like um, the idea that Fidel canceled Christmas or took it away is a pretty huge misnomer. Yeah, yeah. We can talk more about kind of the details of that, which actually came about 10 years later in 69. Um, There were basically it it becomes a a working day and not a, a day off. Um, but people were still allowed to go to Christmas Mass and all that kind of thing. But the key here is in 59, as the revolution is just getting on its feet, it is trying to figure out you know, how it's going to relate to the normal patterns of people's lives as well. And like you said, Matt, Epiphany is always the bigger day in Cuba uh, and in Latin America generally. It's not unique in that way. Um, it's the day that the wise men come give gifts to Jesus, so that's also the gift-giving day. So it's a, a major cultural difference that people in the U.S. are incapable of understanding, <laughs> I guess. Uh, reporters, you know, sort of sensationalized the, uh, the politics around Christmas because it is such a, like, a national myth-making holiday for the United States. So I think, you know, what you see right off the bat in the revolution is this kind of challenge of if we're going to celebrate Christmas, we're going to do it our own way. Um, There's also some other stuff that the revolution did in 59 that's pretty interesting. Um, The government actually encouraged people in Havana to celebrate in their own way. Um, They contributed money to decorate um, whole districts with lights and palm trees and banners they didn't import uh, uh, like Christmas trees. They had Cuban pine trees instead um, because you couldn't prohibit trees under the revolutionary government. Um, shopping districts of Cuba were crowded. The New York Times reports, uh, which is a publication that is not always favorable <laughs> to the Cuban revolution, to say the least. Um, the government did a bunch of other stuff. They brought down prices on things like roast pigs and stuff like that for low income families and, uh, the government also poured a bunch of money into charitable organizations so that people didn't go hungry. Lots of other stuff that, again, is reported in in a New York Times article. So um, there's actually a sense in the very beginning of the revolution when there's still, you know, enough money floating around, I guess, to do this kind of thing. That the state wanted to invest in people's celebratory activities that way, too. And they still did. Um, It's not like they stopped doing that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, right off the bat, they're trying to, I guess, in part, maybe ingratiate themselves to the people, but less cynically also wanting to say, you know, we can do Christmas our way. We can do these kind of celebrations without the imperialist symbols of of Santa and and Coca-Cola. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, That's good. Good context. Um, And that's so that's 1959. That's the first time that Fidel canceled Christmas, though. The second time is a little bit different. (laughs) So 10 years later, in 1969, um, there's a big sugar harvest, and it's a big deal, um, and it's happening during the Christmas holiday, right? So Cuba announced it wanted to produce 10 million tons of sugar in 1970 to boost the economy, and uh, it was a really involved campaign, as you can imagine. 10 million tons of sugar is a lot so people came from everywhere all over to uh to help it was like a big um a big mobilizing moment where everyone from students to factory workers had to come cut sugarcane in the fields to like meet the meet the goals right and um whatever uh the campaign didn't turn out quite right and it was a big blow to Cuban morale the, the sugar campaign um but that's a different story altogether um but because this sort of like fell during the christmas time um uh, the the Cuban uh, Communist Party they they did kind of shove off the celebration of Christmas until a different date so they didn't cancel it I guess again the context is important they didn't cancel Christmas in 1969 they just rescheduled it for July which is very funny um, <laughs> but again uh, you know they're not so they're not uh, prohibiting anyone from celebrating or going to mass or whatever but just like the the ob- the observance of the day is sort of is kind of going in a different direction. Um, but uh, people in the United States took this in some very funny ways. Not everybody, but this is one article that um, is from a, a local publication called the Atlanta Constitution, written by Arthur Hopp, who's a person I'm not very familiar with. But he wrote it. Um, <laughs> he wrote it in 1969 for this uh, this newspaper, and uh, I think it's very funny um, to uh, at least hold this up as a very weird example of like <laughs> the ways that um, anti Cuban sentiment. Uh, Leaks into the brains of people in the United States for no real good reason. So Arthur Hopp writes, Fidel Castro, in as fiendish a plot to destroy America as any in years, has postponed Christmas until next July. Is nothing sacred? Mr. Castro's avowed purpose was to allow the Cubans to enjoy the Christmas holidays by getting in the sugar crop. But the real intent of the sinister, devious mastermind is to obviously wreck our economy. (laughs) That's right, folks. By rescheduling Christmas... Fidel Castro has ruined our economy. <laughs> I don't know. He um, so he goes on to elaborate. When word of the Fidel Castro movable Christmas plan gets around, a lot of supposedly loyal Americans are going to fall into his intricate trap. If This is a, this is a uh, supposed quote. This is like an imagined conversation. He's inventing a guy to get mad at, in, uh, in, <laughs> in other words. If President Roosevelt could switch Thanksgiving around to suit the merchants, they'll say thoughtfully, why can't President Nixon switch Christmas around to suit us shoppers? So we can expect a grassroots drive to transfer Christmas to a more convenient time of year. Well and good, but and here's the commie fly in the American applesauce. No two Americans can agree on which day would be best.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of great stuff in this in, in these uh these paragraphs here. I love that. Um so okay, uh Fidel Castro uh he changes Christmas in 1959, he postpones Christmas in 1969 is nothing sacred, this com- this big commie flying American applesauce. <laughs> I feel like this article was, like, written by an AI that only read all of your uncle's texts in <laughs> Facebook wall. That's right. It does feel that way for sure. Um, I hope that it's I, – I can't even quite tell if it's all very sincere or if it's, like, maybe some some sarcastic. It's just – it's hard to tell, you know. People, um, when it comes to Cuba, are just wild. Um, okay. <laughs> hard okay. to parody. Okay, so – Christmas in Cuba, it's complicated, but now let's talk, let's talk about the triumphant moment here in 1997 where Christmas, no, wait, wait, wait. Oh yeah. One please. more very
1: cool thing yeah. about Christmas in Cuba that I just remembered. Um, so I've been reading uh, Ernesto Cardinal's book in Cuba again, which is his, like uh, his Cuba travel blog, his diary of being in Cuba in the seventies and two neat things. One, there's a cool anecdote where he talks about hanging out with Margaret Randall, a guest on our show in the past and he reports a pretty cool thing where he says uh, children get three toys at Christmas all over Cuba, one big toy and two little ones. The children can pick them out in the stores and the child of an important director and the child from the most remote cane field in Cuba get toys that have exactly the same value.
0: Hey, that's uh, cool. he
1: goes on to also. Yeah, <laughs> he also tells this great story about birthdays. He says uh, there's a birthday party for each child, the same party for every single child in Cuba, a birthday cake for 100 people and 75 bottles of pop. I went to get a cake for Gregory who had his birthday last week and it was so big. She opened her arms that I could hardly get it on the bus. Uh, If you want to have a party in the playground in the Havana zoo, for example, they'll give the child a pineapple and 70 sandwiches for their friends. Uh, So great. (laughs) Lots of other great stuff in there. Um, And uh, there's also a really fun anecdote that uh, Ernesto Cardinal says where he's talking about the shifting of, uh, of the, um, the Christmas celebration. And uh, he has this great line where he says, many Catholics were irritated by the shift of the Christmas festivities to the 26th of July, and they thought it was a scheme to put an end to the Christian celebration of Christmas, as if these festivities had anything to do with the Christian celebration of Christmas. He goes on to say later, he's talking with some Catholics at a meal, and he says, (laughs) in an extremely Ernesto Cardinal moment, I told them that I approved of the shift of Christmas to the 26th of July, (laughs) Even even though many Catholics thought of it as a profanation, the primitive church celebrated the birth of Christ on the 6th of January, as it is still celebrated in the Orient. Wasn't it better to celebrate the birth of Jesus on the birthday of the revolution than on the birthday of the sun? And this is the birth of the sun in Cuba. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, anyway, we can move on to JP2, but I've just got Cardinal on the brain and some great uh, Christmas anecdotes. No,
0: it's, it's a great... Uh... It's a great digression. It's worth our time always to talk about Mister Cardinal and all of these great <laughs> sandwiches you get at birthday parties in Cuba. Um, Got to find that many friends. <laughs> that's okay. It is so many friends though. Seventy-five sandwiches. That's wild. Um, <laughs> you can invite your entire school, man. That's that's a lot of kids. A lot yeah, of kids. These the are zoo. also
1: yeah. These are the the heyday of the revolution too, right in the seventies. Right. And uh, I think good context too because we're about to switch. the 90s which are the opposite Mm -hmm. but uh it's neat to kind of get a sense to what life is like when cuba is like still basically a you know like a struggling state but uh having a lot of support from the soviet union and from other kinds of trade sources so uh you know if uh if cable wasn't blockaded what, what the u.s really fears is kids being able to have a birthday with 75 kids <laughs> in the middle of the park that's the problem when you go you
0: do need to ask people if they still get sandwiches and and soda pop on, on birthdays from the state <laughs> I, I should
1: i to will ask. ask i'm gonna ask
0: yeah so important so important that we all know this uh specific, specifically for me <laughs> okay like you said dean um things get get different in the 90s um between like what 1991 and 2001? That's the special period in Cuba where things mm-hmm. are particularly bad. Is that uh, do I have those dates right? I think I do. Yeah, yeah. Well, the decade of the 90s generally,
1: okay. and into the 2000s for sure.
0: Great, I'm glad I'm right. Um, so in 1997, um, the whole story about Christmas, uh, in Cuba changes, right? So there's this sort of like interesting leeriness toward it as a capitalist holiday, uh, it gets shifted around because of uh production schedules. But in 1997, Fidel Castro uh, brings it back. He says, Cuba will celebrate Christmas, and isn't that great? So, it's where the Grinch brings all your presents back. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly it. Here he comes, sledding down the hill with his dog, and he's going to bring all the Christmas presents back, finally. Um, we're all so excited. Uh, <laughs> finally, this commie is getting out of our applesauce. <laughs> All right, so uh, the thing that kind of brings us all together, though, is that uh, the Pope, John Paul II, he comes to visit Cuba for the, I think that this is the first time that a a Pope comes to visit revolutionary Cuba, which is pretty significant. Um, significant for a lot of reasons because, um, I don't know, Cuba has, um, you know, been an atheist state and antagonistic towards religious people. It's also been a secular state that has, you know, also, not been great towards religious people, so it's just like some complicated things there. Um, the United States uh, had, I mean, even into the '90s. I mean, you can you can guess that they were even carrying out the embargo then, as <laughs> uh, trying to smear the reputation of Cuba and uh, the the Pope visiting and like um, kind of having like a a pleasant visit and kind of an interesting and productive uh, visit. It can go a long way when it comes to diplomacy. Um, the thing that is interesting though about John Paul II's visit is that there's like a lot of different vying agendas, I think, kind of going on at once. Um mm-hmm. in um in a book uh that Fidel wrote, it's called Capitalism in Crisis. He kind of re- he recollects some different things about um this this uh JP2 visit. And uh, he does mention that um, <laughs> he says that, like, you know, a lot of um, a lot of journalists came, you know, just in good faith to kind of see what's going on with the the pope in Cuba. And that was fine. But then a lot of other journalists came um, in hopes that this was sort of like um, the, the trumpet sounding to uh, to bring down the the walls of Jericho to use a, and He uses that particular <laughs> biblical reference, which I think is funny. Um so what all that to say that like so a lot of different people had different uh, expectations for like what this papal visit would would mean. Um you know more traditional Cap- Catholics, reactionary Catholics, Catholics in the United States, you know, were kind of hoping that uh uh John Paul II would come and kind of give them all what's for and uh and and speak some truth to Fidel Castro's power or something. Um uh, and other and and uh, Fidel Castro had some you know specific goals in mind as well, right? And uh, even the Cuban Communist Party had some goals in mind. Um, and I'll talk about some of those things in, in a in a second here. Um, but here are some some orienting ideas to kind of think about um, how this whole thing played out. Um, so here's a, a few quotes uh, from Castro himself, Fidel, the guy. Um, from a CNN article that's from 1987. So uh, I'll I'll read a little bit here. The Pope is our guest, and we will do everything to the hilt to ensure that the visit will be historic, Castro said during a three-hour speech broadcast Sunday on national television. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> it's so long. Everyone has – we have all those sandwiches down there, though, so it's got – you know, you got, you got Okay. The Cuban president said he would present the proposal to those in charge of organizing next month's papal visit. The proposal is sure to be accepted because the organizing committee is made up of Castro appointees. So this is um, this is right before the visit happens and uh, Castro's trying to talk everyone into it. But of course, they're going to go along with it because he's Fidel Castro. In Sunday's speech, uh, Castro pledged to make every effort to ensure that the Pope's visit, um, the first papal visit to Cuban history, is a successful one. And then uh, he, he goes on to say that Cuba is the only Spanish-speaking country in Latin America the Pope had not already visited since ascending to the papacy in 1978. Um... And then uh, uh, Castro again says, I made this proposal as a gesture for the Pope and for all Christians, Castro said. The Pope is scheduled to visit Cuba January 21st through 25th, a visit that Castro called an honor for Cuba and a valiant gesture. Um, and also, um, the the Vatican is cited as uh, being pretty into this whole thing. Um, a Vatican spokesman, Joaquin Navarro-Valls, told... Um, told CNN and Reuters who also report the story. I expressed satisfaction and gratitude for a decision that was highly desired by the people and the Catholic Church in Cuba. So there you go. Like uh, Fidel wants, wants uh, the Pope to come uh, on a visit and uh, the Vatican is like pretty okay with this. They're, they're having a, they're having a good time. They want this all to happen. I think that there's like a, a few different reasons that you could kind of like read all this out or like ways you can interpret this. Um, so it's like 1997 this is the special period. Things are bad and hard for people in Cuba. Um, the embargo is there in play and like things are bad. <laughs> I guess I said that twice, but that's okay. It, it was that bad. Um, and uh, I think that the like a papal visit kind of gives a type of legitimacy to Cuba and also kind of like rehabilitates a public image when um, the United States is like doing everything in their power to smear it. So all of these things, um, I mean, cynical or maybe, you know, less cynical. Um, are are why this whole thing is happening, I think. Um, and it, it also kind of demonstrates, too, that uh, Fidel Castro is uh, thinking in a different way about religion than in the past. So that's something to kind of pay attention to as well. Okay, so John Paul II, he goes to Cuba. Um, Christmas is back on the table. That's great. But apart from Christmas, uh, JB2's visit to Cuba caused like a lot, of, a lot of controversy, like I was already saying, right? Reactionaries, they wanted the, the Pope to speak on their behalf and denounce Castro. And uh, Fidel Castro and the other communists in Cuba wanted him to, you know, come there to sort of add legitimacy to their project. Um, the Communist Party in Cuba even mentioned that uh, in an article in Granma, mentioned that he was courageous for being a, like a counter to the United States effort to keep Cuba isolated. So they recognize that like having the Pope there is like a real positive thing. Okay. JP2, in general, is a complicated figure for sure, especially when it comes to socialism <laughs> and <laughs> communism, right? Um, but in his visit to the island, he spoke out publicly about his position on the U.S. blockade, and I think that is quite interesting. Um, he gave a few different addresses, like maybe six or seven. Um, he held, you know, he would kind of give a homily during mass, or he would kind of speak to a particular group in Cuba. Um, he spoke to the Cuban Council of Churches. He spoke to people who were like... Um, sick in cuba which is kind of interesting he spoke to people who are like in different religious communities um he spoke to people at the university of havana all of these different places right um, But one that's really interesting um is uh this kind of address that he gave to um uh, the cuba's youth that that's it so um, i'm going to read this piece that's kind of reporting what um what uh, john paul ii said to the youth of cuba This is from an article from the Washington Post from 1998 uh, called Pope Criticizes U.S. Embargo. So you can only imagine what he's going to (laughs) say. All right. So uh, it it goes like this. In a written message to Cuba's youth distributed after his mass in the eastern city of Camagüey, the pope disparaged the effects of economic embargoes, which are always deplorable because they hurt the most needy. Uh, A statement that's welcomed by Castro in his battle to change U.S. policy. So. That there it, it's um I read the entire um the entire address that JP2 gives to the youth of Cuba and it is actually kind of interesting. Um he says, uh, you know, uh youth of Cuba, you um the the embargo's bad. Stay strong, <laughs> keep your grades up, um, invite Jesus <laughs> into your heart, among other things. Um, but this uh this line that is kind of like it's brief, right? He just says Really briefly that uh, he, the economic embargoes are always deplorable because they always hurt the most needy um, is something that I think um, was really good, um, <laughs> really well received while he was in Cuba, uh, definitely by the youth there, definitely well received by Castro and the other, um, you know, Cuban socialists. And that's great, um, but not something that the people in the United States wanted to hear, not something that uh, I think a lot of other people were expecting, definitely like sort of more anti-communist figures. Uh, So quite interesting.
1: Yeah, maybe to kind of underscore too why it is so significant, like, um, you know, this is in the midst of the special period, which Matt, you already mentioned. But like for folks who don't know when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s or or was defeated or however people want to talk about it. Um, It was a huge problem for Cuba specifically because Cuba was so reliant on the Soviet Union as a trade partner and a political partner. And they ended up basically having a, a double whammy. The embargo meant that they had very limited avenues to expand their trade and diversify their relationships with other nations. And the collapse of the kind of socialist bloc, at least as far as the Soviet Union was concerned, meant that. They also lost huge markets, tons of investments, even like heavy machinery and parts that would have been imported from the Soviet Union to continue industrializing Cuba and uh, help it sort of find its own path in development. That was all ended and and stopped, you you know, like immediately. So uh, this is 97. So it's actually been, you know, almost half a decade, really, or over half a decade of uh, of that uh, situation. And it's remembered as one of the most difficult times in Cuban history, um, comparable only to the times right now on the island, uh, which are either as bad or worse um, as that time. Lots of shortages of food and medicine, um, shortages of uh, opportunity, jobs, um, foreign currencies, et cetera. So for Pope John Paul to, to come in the midst of that, and first of all, criticize the embargo is great. Secondly, also though, it's kind of, um, you know, like, it, I think it was a risky play uh, on Cuba's part to invite the Pope to come at that time. Um, John Paul II was a cold warrior. Uh, just <laughs> is true. He opposed liberation theology. He uh, uh, opposed um, all kinds of communist states in, in important ways. He was Polish himself. He had experience living in a communist country. And uh, supported the Solidarity Movement against the communist government of Poland. Um, And, you know, lots of contradictions and complicated histories there, too. Like, lots of understandable reasons for that. But also, he was uh, very close to Ronald Reagan and supportive of uh, a certain anti-communist politics throughout the 80s, especially. Um, By the time you get to the 90s, you know, (laughs) the Soviet Union is collapsing. And people thought that Cuba would follow like like a domino. And it's risky to invite a huge moral figure uh, like that to your island at like the worst time (laughs) of your island's history and kind of just give that person several platforms to say what they want to say. So I think it's a really interesting sort of credit, too, to the faith that the Cuban sort of authorities had in their people to have a kind of I don't know, uh, strength of conviction to be able to sort of engage that. And also a uh, uh, sort of credit to John Paul II's um, position to sort of see the situation for what it is. Um, John Paul II made his own kind of criticisms in a, a soft way on the island, but you know he didn't uh, kick Cuba while it was down and um, took the opportunity to at least name really what was the major belligerent force at that time, which was the the embargo. So a really kind of, um, you know, tense kind of moment in Cuban history for a pope to come and say the things that John Paul II said.
0: You're right in saying there's lots of tension and lots of risk. And um, I think it's actually important to stress, I think, some of the ways that Cuba like embraced that risk. So in in John Paul II's visit, Fidel gave the pope complete access to the island and like state media, which I think is pretty unheard of for somebody who is I mean, like you said, anti-communist and like an outsider and uh, just kind of like a a figure that it might be unclear about exactly what he's going to say. When I say that, I mean that he had access to like, you know, go anywhere he wanted first, but also like state media covered all of his, um, all of his homilies and stuff that he gave. So it's like what, uh, what the Pope said was broadcast to everybody in Cuba and like Fidel Castro was not afraid of that. And um, that is quite interesting Um, And as we'll talk about here in a a minute, the um, some of the people who work for that state media were actually pretty worried about that (laughs) Um, or not super thrilled about it. Um, But uh, and and it's also important to say, too, that um, the Pope didn't come and just say very positive things and like end the embargo and uh, keep your grades up kind of stuff. He actually did come and bring some pretty (laughs) big criticisms, I think, of Cuban society and uh, end of the revolution that made some people upset. But um, just the same, like, he wasn't shut down or whatever. They didn't, like, turn the <laughs> – they didn't cut the feed or whatever when he started kind of going <laughs> going off the rails. Um, so uh, here's an example of something that John Paul II said. This is in a um, – in uh, it was after – it was uh, the homily during, uh, during mass one day, and uh, he kind of goes to some lengths to make criticisms of the educational system, which I think are um, – Profoundly Catholic problems, (laughs) but interestingly, just the same. So, John Paul II says this. The social situation experienced in this beloved country has created not a few difficulties for family stability. For example, material scarcities as when wages are not sufficient or have a very limited buying power, dissatisfaction for ideological reasons, the attraction of consumer society, these are other... These and other measures involving labor or other matters have helped intensify a problem which has existed in Cuba for years. People being obliged to be away from the family within the country and migration, which has torn apart whole families and caused suffering for a large part of the population. Not easily accepted and often traumatic are the separation of children and the substitution of the role of parents as a result of schooling away from home even during adolescence. These experiences place young people in situations which sadly result in the spread of promiscuous behavior, loss of ethical values, coarseness, premarital sexual relations at an early age, and easy recourse to abortion. All of this has a profoundly negative impact on young people who are called to embody authentic, moral values for the building of a better society. So, um, you can see how this is... I I mean... um, this is definitely a critique of Cuban society and like a critique of the revolution, and kind of like the way that it drives people in particular directions. Um, but I mean, I don't know. This is just the kind of thing that, <laughs> that that the Pope would say. I, I don't know. To me, it's not uh, not that damning. But um, maybe I'd feel differently if I was there in 1987. Interestingly enough, though, these comments and criticisms were broadcast on Cuban TV to the entire island, and when it came to Fidel, they went without response. That was the strategy from the uh from from Fidel, that was his media strategy. Let the pope say whatever he wants and uh highlight the places where the revolution and John Paul II had common values like um you know forgiving third world debt and nuclear disarmament. Those are two places they agree for sure. So let's highlight those spaces and the rest of it just just let him go, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, though, uh, not everyone in Cuba was thrilled with this strategy and I can kind of understand why, but well, whatever. Um, so this is, uh, and this is from that same Washington post article I was talking about earlier. This is, uh, uh, uh some quotes from, um, a reporter from Granma, the communist party daily newspaper, and also another government, uh, government person. Uh, I'll, I'll read a bit here just to kind of give you an idea of what people thought. There's an imbalance, said Felix Arbizu, a reporter for Grandma of the Communist Party Daily. The Pope criticized the education system, and there was no response. Cuban government sources said the Pope's criticisms have anchored some senior party officials who say the government should respond. These sources said Castro has decided not to issue a public response, yet although his welcoming statement to the pontiff on Wednesday contained several barbs directed at the Catholic Church as well. The Cuban government realizes... Whatever they say that is publicly confrontational could lead to a situation where they have no control. The strategy is to pretend they are not receiving criticism to highlight the points they have in common. I mean, um, yeah, so that's what they did. <laughs> for better and for worse, I think. Um, but I think that that is an important highlight because it shows that um, that there are real tensions at play, I think, in, in this whole yeah. thing. Yeah. That there are, like there are agendas kind of going on here that some people want different things from this interaction. Um, but I don't know. I think that Phil's probably right to just let it go. <laughs> it's it, it, yeah. As a uh, speaking as a, a semi public relations person, uh, sometimes you got You got to know, you got to know when to play your cards and know when to not and just shut up. And I think uh, that's a great time not to say something.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of diplomacy going on here and people trying to be respectful. I've been reading Fidel's um, kind of autobiography, a long interview that he gave to a journalist called uh, My Life. Um, And in it, he has some comments on JP2. And he talks a little bit about this decision, actually. uh, So I'll read what he says. He says, when Pope John Paul II was in the Plaza de la Revolución in 1998, uh, the Pope gave his speeches with absolute freedom there. What he preached was not congruent with the philosophy and doctrines of the revolution, regardless of the opinions that you may have about the person and merits of the Pope, who was an extraordinary figure. No question about that. His own philosophy, he explained to the people, uh, the historical reasons for his very tough position against socialism. But there he was on Cuban so- soil surrounded by consideration and respect. There was also in Santiago de Cuba, an activity with the Pope and the entire town was there And one of the people who spoke gave a hard, hard speech. And people began leaving, little by little, and the plaza just emptied out. No more than 10% of the people stayed. I saw it on television. The cameras had to find angles to keep from showing the empty plaza. Raul was there. I asked him to go to Santiago. But not one shout, no heckling. The people had been told, not one sign, not one poster, not one word, one shout against the Pope, no matter if you're against what he's saying. This is a nation with a political education— And the people understood that that was the way to act on the occasion of the Pope's visit. The Pope was welcomed not just by the believers, he was received by the entire nation. What's more, I myself spoke on television twice because we had to guarantee that the people understood his personality, history, his solidarity with the poor, in a word who he was and what he was. And then uh, he goes on, uh, Fidel, to say, uh, this is why I told uh, President Carter, we could fill the plaza, uh, come down here and persuade the people. Convince them that the revolution is no good. Tell them why it's no good. Put forth your arguments and debate us. <laughs> we brought the people together, and we put every television set in the country at the disposal of the president, all the channels, so the people could hear the debate. Uh, those are the conditions that we expect when you visit us, if you accept our invitation. Anyway, uh,
0: he did not come. That's <laughs> but uh, that's pretty incredible. It's a great strategy. That's a, yeah. a wild media philosophy, kind of running behind the scenes there. I love that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, pretty bold move, but it is amazing, too, that the uh, the uh, the sort of approach was, you know, we trust the people to know better and we'll we'll
0: let them hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, A lot of discipline there. OK, so the overall, I mean, this is kind of the story, right? Um, There's a lot of different vying interests in John Paul II's um, presence in Cuba. Um, he says some good things, he says some bad things. And uh everyone keeps it cool. I don't know. That's kind of how it goes down in general. It's kind of like a, um, I don't know, a a great example of the ways that, um, the history of Marxist Leninists, uh, dealing with religion is extremely varied, but this is, you know, this is one of the, I think the most Marxist Leninist approaches, right. Just to kind of like, um, you know, you, you have a figure like the Pope and you find out how far that, you know, they can go with you and you receive them. And, um, and uh the rest of it you kind of just write it off i guess (laughs) kind of interesting though but i don't know man if you want an example of the ways that uh a socialist country has dealt with uh you know catholicism or christianity this is a a great example um it, it gets no clearer than this yeah
1: you know cuba does have that remarkable capacity to learn i think in a way that is not totally unique to socialist experiments but I think is um, is done in a very Cuban kind of way, I guess. Uh, if you read something like Fidel and Religion, for example, published before this happened in the 80s, this long interview that Fidel did with Fried Beto, um, he talks a lot about how far the revolution has traveled and how far it needs to go to make a space for people who are believers to really feel like they're part of Cuban society, part of the revolution, And not alienated. And the revolution never banned people from being Christian, never stopped people from believing, but it did very obviously create an atmosphere in which, you know, your education system was not just secular, it was explicitly atheist, the state was atheist, you couldn't be a believing member um, of a church and also a member of the Communist Party for a very long time. Um, and those things have changed and kind of opened up over time in Cuban society as well. And I think it's, it's good to sort of, you know, try to travel with Cuba, I guess, (laughs) in that history and, and kind of figure out how they're learning how to, to make more space in an authentic way. And, um, and the, the papal visits also, I think are sort of an attempt to recognize that that's the case, that there's some opening up and each in their own way. I think John Paul II, Benedict and Francis have all tried to, Create more space, I think, with, you know, maybe better and worse success in, in certain cases. But, um, you know, it's a, a recognition that uh, there could be room for dialogue and not necessarily like a, a sort of flat opposition there.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that's a great, I think, observation to learn. Tell all of the most reactionary Catholics in your life that. <laughs> all right. We
1: do have to make one passing reference to Pope Benedict, uh, which he did go to Cuba You know, Benedict, John Paul II, for all his faults, I think that he did have some strong words to say about global economics, about capitalism, about the poor. Um, You know, I think he was, uh, well, we didn't share a variety of opinions, (laughs) I'll put it that way. But, uh, you know, he he had that kind of um, social consciousness at least. And I think Benedict, too, even though he was uh, the top cop at the Vatican um, and, uh, you know, disciplined a lot of our, our faves on this podcast. By the time he became pope, he also had a bit of a voice critical of capitalism. And uh, I think his approach to going to Cuba was also very unique. Um, John Paul, II traveled a lot. He was like a big time traveling pope like to get around. Um, pope Francis is that way, too. Pope Benedict was not that way. He didn't travel nearly as much. He was not extroverted at all. He was a very academic kind of guy. So for him to go to Cuba was extremely intentional. And I think that is very interesting. Um, probably lots to be said about that as well. But uh, he did. Um, so if if John Paul, II advocated for Christmas becoming a holiday, um, Benedict advocated for a Good Friday becoming a holiday, <laughs> which feels pretty on brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, all that to say, you know, it was kind of a a repeat maybe of all the same points we've made about John Paul II with respect to Benedict. You could find all kinds of nuanced differences, but the point is he went there. Good for him. Um, Pope Francis, though. Uh, I think Pope Francis's visit to Cuba in 2015 really marks a, a huge watershed moment. Pope Francis had actually written a book in 1998 that was called Dialogues Between John Paul II and Fidel Castro. Uh, Pope Francis was a bishop in Argentina uh, and a Jesuit, of course, and also a major player in Salaam, the Bishop's Conference of Latin America. And so he observed this uh, visit to Cuba with a lot of interest. And in the book, he says kind of all the things you could probably guess. He has a lot of criticisms of communism as a kind of materialist worldview Uh, But at the same time, he thinks that now is the time to recognize the Cuban state as a partner in dialogue, not just something to be, again, flatly opposed or seen as a total enemy or opposition figure. And that's 1998 that uh, Bergoglio at the time is having these these kinds of reflections on that papal visit. So by the time he himself is the Pope and goes to Cuba, I think you see that coming to fruition. Um, There are so many interesting things about it. It comes at a time when uh, there's a thaw between the U.S. and Cuba. Um, Obama is exploring how to open up relationships between the United States and Cuba And Pope Francis was really instrumental in that as well. He had done some politicking with uh, both of those countries. Francis, I think, has always seen his role as the Pope, as a kind of mediator for peace, a mediator for reconciliation. So he's playing that active role diplomatically. And this trip is so interesting because he chooses to take the trip to Cuba right before he goes to the United States, which is a pretty obvious political and diplomatic move. So he speaks in a number of places in Cuba, just like John Paul II. Although he's not there kind of as long. Um, He says mass in the Plaza de la Revolución, which honestly must have been amazing to see. (laughs) To see Pope Francis like giving a homily under the the big iron, uh, you know, um, fixture of Che Guevara that everybody has seen on the Internet somewhere. Um, Pretty remarkable scene. Uh, He says a lot of stuff while he's in Cuba, but I want to pull out just one because we talked about what John Paul II said to the youth, uh, to a delegation of young people. I wanted to pull out what Pope Francis said to some young people in Havana at a place called the Father Felix Varela Cultural Center. He says, in Buenos Aires, in a new parish in an extremely poor area, a group of university students were building some rooms for the parish. So the parish priest said to me, Why don't you come one Saturday and I'll introduce them to you. They were building on Saturdays and Sundays. They were young men and women from the university. So I arrived, I saw them, and they were introduced to me. This is the architect. He's Jewish. This one is communist. This one is a practicing Catholic. They were all different, yet they were all working for the common good. This is called social friendship, where everyone works for the common good. Social enmity instead destroys. A family is destroyed by enmity, a country is destroyed by enmity, the world is destroyed by enmity, and the greatest enmity is war. Today we see that the world is being destroyed by war because people are incapable of sitting down and talking. Good, let's negotiate, but what can we do together? Where are we going to draw the line? Let's not kill any more people. Where there is division, there's death, the death of the soul, since we're killing our ability to come together. We're killing our social friendship. And this is what I'm asking you today to find ways of building social friendship. He says a bunch more about hope and the importance of kind of a, an, a bit of an optimism and participation and so on. But I pulled this out because it's a, a really important anecdote that Pope Francis is telling in a communist country, right? <laughs> like, here I was in Buenos Aires, a different kind of situation. And here's this story where I met a handful of different people Um, A Jewish person, the communist, the Catholic, and they're all uh, different, but they're all working toward the common good. And what Pope Francis is really driving home is that, uh, you know, they they can find a way of working together for the sake of Cuban society. Uh, And after that, he goes on to the United States and, you know, gives a big address to Congress. um, All kinds of interesting kinds of, I don't know, politics that happen in the U.S. as well but it's a really powerful moment. Um, Raul Castro famously said after Francis left that he would consider becoming Christian again. (laughs) Lots of uh, a powerful impression left on Cuban society. But uh, yeah, if John Paul II opened the door and maybe Pope Benedict like held it open, (laughs) you could say uh, Pope Francis walked through. You know, it was a
0: pretty remarkable moment, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's like, Cool story, um so have a very funny vi- <laughs> vision of uh of these popes holding doors open for each other now, <laughs> all their big hats have to fit underneath <laughs> yeah, it's a big door um that's cool well, I don't know Dean, what can we draw out from the uh the visit of of Francis to Cuba like what, what do we do with it at the end of the day?
1: yeah, I think the Francis visit is both a um a really exciting thing to think about, and also something that is very disappointing. I think it's exciting because it was sort of, um, you know, at the, at the crest of a wave of uh, possibility for Cuba that the embargo might get relaxed um, a little bit, or at least some of the sanctions would be lifted. And Pope Francis, I think, really believed that this was a moment of reconciliation, that that's the symbol of the trip. You go to Cuba and then you go to the U.S., you know, you try to bring these countries together um, in whatever kind of moral language the Pope has available to him. And I think that's great, Like it, and it's an exciting kind of thing. The disappointment is that, of course, uh, when Trump became president, the sanctions were tightened uh, rather than being loosened further. And Cuba is under worse situation uh, economically than arguably it was in the special period. And that is a really unfortunate reality that uh, the pope uh, did his best. Three popes have done their best uh, to try to facilitate reconciliation, um, but it, it hasn't come. So I think for me, at least what it sort of draws out is Pope Francis is really, I think, trying to encourage the church to see itself as a participant in social life. Um, he said the same thing to Christians in China when they had the Vatican-Beijing deal, that, uh, they're, that Christians in China should see themselves as contributing to a healthy civic life, you know, with all the kind of fruits that a Christian life can offer a society. And I think that is still really remarkable. I think it's more than we got from Benedict and John Paul II. It's that emphasis on dialogue that I think is huge and something that whether people are a communist or not, I would hope could like get behind, right? <laughs> that common good, that social friendship. Um, but the the disappointment is still there that uh, even though all these popes have criticized the embargo between the U.S. and, and Cuba, uh, nevertheless, you know, it's still there. The U.N. can't stop it. The popes can't stop it. Uh, the only people who can stop it are Congress, and they just don't want to do that. And uh, that is a huge bummer.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I hear you about the disappointment part. That makes a lot of sense. Man, I I feel like kind of hearing the language of dialogue and, uh, and social friendship and kind of these ideas, it's really compelling, I think. I mean, I'm not Catholic, and I'll never be Catholic, probably. Um, I guess no one can say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, w- I would assume. Uh, Anglo- Anglo-Catholic is probably as close as I'm going to ever get, um, being, being a great Anglican over here. But, uh, man, I think it's really compelling stuff. Like. Uh, you know, I can't imagine any, any other types of Christians making that same kind of claim to dialogue and like, you know, contributing towards the com- the common good and all, all this great stuff. So um, for whatever it's worth, I think it's great. Um, but maybe here's a here's a direction that we can kind of go to uh, to wrap up the conversation. Um, this is a, a quote from Capitalism in Crisis by Fidel Castro. And uh, this is from a section where he's talking about um the the possibility of like you know like what can a revolutionary state really do um and like what what's the goal of a revolutionary state and um uh before before the quote here the context is that fidel is talking about the ways that uh cuba is not just like a project for the sake of Cuba. It's not just for the island or whatever, but Cuba's goal is to, like, save the world is the language that he uses, which I think is great, too. <laughs> um, anyways, this is, this is a great quote that maybe kind of encapsulates some of the tensions here. Uh, so Fidel says this. It is possible for our country and its capacity as a revolutionary state to devote a great part of its efforts to that struggle for the future, to that struggle against the neoliberal globalization that is crushing us all. It is not the struggle against globalization, as an inevitable phenomena, but the struggle for a more humane and fair global. If they asked the Pope, he would answer, for the globalization of solidarity. If they asked me, I would say what I most deeply believe the only globalization that can save humanity and preserve the human species is a socialist globalization. I think this is cool, though, because um, uh, I don't know. What the Pope says is good, right? And uh it's getting us to a certain direction. Um but but to save the world, uh Fidel Castro thinks you gotta you gotta be a socialist. Uh you know, you can't stop <laughs> at like uh you can't stop a dialogue is is Fidel's point here, maybe. Um solidarity is good, but uh liberation is uh, is important in that in that whole struggle. Um but I, I think like I, I don't I don't know. To me it's it's so interesting to see the ways that Fidel kind of brings up the Pope in like in I mean, either well. Um, i mean jump dumbletree specifically here but like it brings up the pope like obviously this is like a very like meaningful moment um and like an important part of like cuba's story and uh something that uh, fidel castro apparently thinks about kind of a lot uh, given how much uh how much he refers to the pope in this book and in other other pieces of writing so it's like you know um there's tensions there's contradictions uh you know there it's like dialectic or something but like um <laughs> The uh, the back and forth between Fidel and uh, and and the the Pope, the papal visits uh, are are like meaningful things to kind of figure out in in terms of like, you know, how do you how do you (laughs) how do you save the world? How do you uh, struggle (laughs) towards liberation?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good note. And I I guess I would add to the the idea that also (laughs) for for Fidel, if you ask the Pope, he'd say a globalization of solidarity. I feel like what Fidel's saying too is like he agrees, but how do you get that? Yeah, it's only through socialist globalization, right? That yeah. that you can't actually have the globalization of solidarity without an economy that is truly based in solidarity, which is not capitalism, right? Like capitalism can never ever be an economy of solidarity; it will always be an economy of competition, of cutthroat uh, actions, of you know, selling people out exploiting people and so on. Even the most humane capitalism is always going to have that kind of fundamentally exploitative relationship. And that is just not solidarity. It's the opposite of that. And, uh, you know, it's, I guess the theme of this podcast is always, what do these two things have to do with each other? Christianity and the left. And I guess one thing I think is really revealed by these papal visits too is, um, how much socialism has to offer that conversation. Um, and uh, also how much uh, maybe socialism, too, needs to learn how to dialogue with the people that, that could be on its side, right? <laughs> that, like, they are traveling in the same direction, mm-hmm. um, but uh, they have to do that in ways that are kind of mutually respectful. And I think it's a good model. The, the popes and uh, the the communists of Cuba seem to be uh, uh, giving us an example of what that dialogue actually looks like in, in real time. It seems like... To me, it almost seems like a dialogue that's ahead of its time, you know, like (laughs) it's a dialogue that uh, that is like 100 years in the future, optimistically speaking, um, in terms of global values and so on. And uh, I think that is like pretty remarkable. Actually, it's a prophetic kind of encounter, I guess, that that even a conservative uh, pope like JP, two or or Benedict could find kind of, uh, you know, these points of contact and that even uh, a hardline Marxist Leninist like Fidel could sort of. uh, you know, imagine what the Pope could say and, and find a way to hook on to it. I think that's pretty neat.
0: Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash magnificast. If you do that, you can get access to occasional early episodes because we're we're just so busy, guys. It's so hard to, to make these episodes early. <laughs> uh, but you can also get invited to our cool Discord community where we talk about all kinds of great things. Um, we share memes and pictures of our pets, and uh, it's really lovely to be a part of it. Um, all right, our intro music is by Maria Armstrong. Our outro music is by the Logical Spoon, and we'll see you not next week, but in the new year with more great content about socialism and Christianity.
1: And one more episode about Cuba. Uh,
0: probably. Pro- probably, at least at least one. <laughs>
1: Keep your hoods up And you stay up late In Jackson You Keep your hoods up where well, you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Oh, don't mind A cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early least I would have.